0: We are uh, gratefully worshiping together this morning, and as we do, we are joined together, not only uh, in spirit. When we take communion, we're, we're joining with people all through generations who celebrate our need for forgiveness. Here, whether you're in the tent or, or watching on your couch or whether you're here in the room, we're reminded that all of us are connected in spirit and love and in worship together. But sometimes just it's hard to connect in our church as, as big as it's gotten. So I want to give you a couple ways that we can connect one of those happens after every service today. Uh, we're going to have a, a group open house. And that group in out, open house right after the service is a chance for you to come meet some people. Maybe you don't even know what kind of group you want or if you even want a group. But you say, hey, I'd like to connect in some way. It's a great chance to talk with folks in the church. Talk about some needs, what you're hoping for. Maybe it's a men's group a women's group. Just a way to connect. After the service today, head up the stairs, second floor. We'd love to connect with you and find some ways that we can serve you better. Also, if you've never been to the Museum of the Bible, I've taken a trip up there with a group of people from our church. Very, very fun. Uh, we have a women's group coming up. Leave in the morning at 6 a.m. You're back, same day, 10 p.m. It's an all-day event. We go up to the Museum of the Bible, do some sightseeing around Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, October 25th. We just invite you to be part of that as a way to connect and get to know some people having a day of adventure in D.C. All right. Well, we'd love to just find ways that we can serve you better. And today, as we are, we're two weeks away from finishing Numbers, I know many of you are going to mourn this. You're going to be so sad. No cheering, no cheering. We're starting the book of Philippians next. It's going to be awesome. We've been preparing for it the last seven months. I think you're going to think about God in a very different way today. Have you ever thought about God as a city planner? You might after today. Have you ever thought God as, as, a, as a lawyer? You might after today. Have you ever thought about God as a a judge, not just a cosmic judge, but one who sets up justice within a society? You might after today. Because in this passage today, which is almost like ripped from the headlines, is something that every society needs, which is what does the rule of justice look like? What does it look like not to take revenge on your own? What does it look like not to let the media declare who is guilty or who isn't? What does it mean to presume evidence? and rules of evidence in a trial? What does it look like for us to not presume innocence, but also distinguish between manslaughter and murder? What does it look like for us to make sure that there are proper witnesses? What is a proper witness? What is a jury of your peers? All of this stuff that we think of as American law or common law was not common to history. All of these principles we think of as common sense today All came from God's instructions in Numbers 35. See, they're about to enter the new land. And in doing so, God says, I want to set up cities of refuge. So the Lord spoke to Moses in the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho. He said, command the children of Israel to give the Levites. Remember, all the other tribes get a piece of land. But the Levites get cities. So tell the Levites they're going to dwell in certain cities. And that's going to be their inheritance of their possession. You will give the Levites also common land, the rural area around the cities, where they can raise their cattle. Now among the cities which you give to the Levites, you shall appoint six cities of refuge, and then an additional 42. So the Levites are going to get 48 cities, but six of them are known as the cities of refuge. Now, let me show you where those are, because if you look at a map all across from the Sea of Galilee to the north to the Dead Sea at the bottom, you'll see they're evenly spread out. Now, these are cities you can run to if you've accidentally killed someone. There was an accident. The family of the person who was killed wants to avenge you or kill you. They're not going to be real objective as to whether or not this was an accident or not. So God set up cities of refuge that you could run and throw yourself in the city of refuge, To get justice, to get a fair trial. And while you were there, you were protected until the trial ensued. And God said, This land, the Canaanite land, has been spoiled because of the revenge and the evil and the injustice over the years. So as we set up this new land, this is going to be a new city, a new land, and a new era where people can pursue justice, not revenge. What's the difference? Well, it's a big difference. Often you hear people say that vengeance is served cold, just cold to the facts, cold to the truth. I can't be objective. I know exactly what happened, but you can't be objective because it so affects you. And while revenge is served cold, justice wears a blindfold. And God is going to set up a system of justice that's very similar to his character. He does not show partiality. And the reason justice is blind is because it doesn't matter if you're rich or poor, slave or free, Jew or Gentile, powerful or not powerful, God wants everyone to have equal access to justice. So he's going to give principles for justice that applied to Israel, they applied to Rome, and they equally apply to us today. And when these principles are followed out, it's a difference between me taking revenge or taking revenge personally versus setting up governments that weigh the evidence under certain rules to make sure we all have equal access to the truth. Let me tell you a story before we dive in the passage. And the story begins in 1770 with John Adams. Maybe you've heard the story of the Boston Massacre. This picture, which occurred in the newspapers at the time, was fabricated. It's not what really happened. Paul Revere put it in there because he so wanted to ignite a revolution that he accused the British soldiers of pulling out their guns and muskets and firing upon innocent colonists, who weren't doing anything wrong at the time. And they were debating and competing news articles to try and get people to take what happened in the Boston Massacre, as it was called, and try and sway people for or against the revolution. Here's what the facts showed. Things were getting increasingly tense as the British continued to see the Americans as ungrateful, that they were being taxed less than the other colonies or the other uh, areas that they were working with. They had more benefits than the other nations they'd been working with, and they saw the Americans as relatively ungrateful. The Stamp Act had already been fought. There was a lot of taxation that's now been imposed without representation on the colonists, and so things are ripe for revolution. The soldiers from the British... The army were sent to just keep the peace. There is a group of, uh, really a mob of colonists who come across one of the British soldiers and begin to push and shove and hit. Pretty soon somebody rings a fire alarm and we go from 10 people to 20 people to 50 to 100 people up against this one British soldier. He's now running for his life as they are trying to chase him down. He runs and finds himself at the custody house. He begins to cry out for help. He's, He's scared for his life. As he cries out, several other soldiers, his commanding officer Preston, and six or seven others surround him in a semicircle. The crowd is now surrounding them, hundreds of people, of colonists, some with knives, some with swords, some with pieces of ice, some with rocks. are throwing them at the soldiers who are beginning to get scared for their life. They put their muskets on to defend themselves. Preston, the commanding officer, says, I will not tell them to shoot. Just back off, just back off. Suddenly another rock is thrown from the crowd, hits one of the soldiers, his gun goes off, somebody says they heard the word fire, three of the soldiers shoot at the oncoming crowd, and three innocent colonists die. The mob is now out of control. They push them up to the governor's place, the governor comes from the second story window and says, you need to disperse... In Boston, we'll have the rule of law. I promise you, we will have a trial to see what happened here. The crowd disperses. Who in the world is going to defend those British soldiers in Boston? John Adams was very outspoken against the Stamp Act. He was not a friend of the the British, but he was also a lawyer and he decided to take this case despite how it was going to destroy him personally and professionally because he so believed in the rule of law Presumed innocence and evidence based trials. At the trial, the prosecution said that the Preston had called out for his men to fire, just as you see in the photograph. Preston said that's not at all I was standing in front of them, they would have shot me in the back. Several other witnesses declared that the British had uh, fought against the innocent. John Adams brings witness after witness showing that the audience had swords that were swinging, knives they were throwing, and sharp objects they were trying to hurt and kill. And John Adams argues that everyone has the right to self-defense. And this was nothing more than self-defense against an angry mob. In his closing arguments, John Adams says, We can all have our opinions, but facts are stubborn things. And the facts are this. A tragedy happened today. But these British soldiers are innocent of murder. They were just defending themselves. And a jury of their peers, colonists in America, weighed the evidence and the testimony and found the soldiers not guilty. And John Adams went on to be a man of integrity, became a president, several other things. Because he was known as someone, despite his political opinions, was willing to stand up for certain principles, like presumed innocence, evidence, testimony, a journey of his peers. A jury of your peers. What you may not know is almost everything he alluded to came from the teachings of Numbers, chapter 35. Where God says we need to be people who are committed to balancing the scales of justice. No matter who it is, we don't presume that whatever the newspaper tells us is true. We want people who are objective to weigh the evidence. So let's look at three ways we do that. The first way to balance the scales God sets up is that justice is to be balanced with forgiveness and presumed innocence. Now, let's start back up a little bit. He starts off by setting up these six cities. Now, the first thing we know about the cities is that they're cities of inheritance. As I said already, the Lord spoke to Moses. says, I want you to give the Levites who don't get any land cities to dwell in. That's going to be their inheritance. And I want you to give them the common land that's around the cities. So the main thing is, these Levites were going to be both the judge and the priest. They orchestrated justice, they also led you into God's God's worship center. These were these cities of refuge, 48 of them spread around, six cities of refuge. The second thing is, it's a city of forgiveness. Because the grazing land is for their cattle that provided for their family, but also many of those were cattle used for the sacrifices at Tabernacle. So this is a city known as the city of justice and inheritance, but also a place you would come for forgiveness when you fell short, when you broke the law, when you need God's favor in your life. They shall have cities to dwell in, and that common land will be for their cattle, for their herds and their animals, The common land which you give the Levites will extend from the wall of the city around a thousand cubits all around, and you shall measure outside the city on the east two thousand cubits, south two thousand cubits, west two thousand cubits, and north two thousand cubits. Very specific measurements for how much land they had for their cattle. The city shall be in the middle, and this shall be to them a common land for all the cities. So here's God's city planner building out the cities, how big they are, how tall they are, where the grazing is, where the city is, where the center of city life is. And again, in the middle of the justice, there's also a place for the cattle, many of which are used for the actual sacrifices. Next, these specific cities of refuge were to be a place of both presumed innocence and justice after a trial. This is a place the accused could go until they had a trial by evidence and by their peers. Now, among these cities, you will give to the Levites, you shall appoint six cities of refuge, to which a manslayer, so what's the difference? So, a manslayer is either someone accused of slaughtering a man, or somebody who accidentally slaughtered a man, contrast from a murderer, someone we know did it and did it with intent. So, that's the difference in that term. So, if you've been accidentally killed somebody, or you've been accused of it, you may run to the city of refuge, and then there's 42 other cities that the Levites are in so all these cities you will give to the Levites will be 48, and you shall give them the common land. And the cities which you will give shall be the possession of the children of Israel. From the larger tribe, they get a bigger city. Smaller tribes get a smaller city. It will be in proportion to the inheritance they receive, just like the census, just like the other tribes. All right. So let me tell you about some of these these cities of refuge. Here's a couple pictures of one. This is Kadesh. So you can just see already, this is very different from the wilderness. I mean, this is where you want to have your cattle, right? This is where you want to be raising your cattle in a a place like this. Beautiful place, beautiful city. This is one of the places. Another picture of Kadesh. Many of it was wooded, forests, trees to build things, all of the pieces you need in Kadesh. Now, one of the cities of refuge I've actually been to is this one called Gezer. Often the city portion was built on a tell, which is a raised area, like you see here. But remember, there were certain boundary markers to how big it is and where your cattle could go. Now, keep in mind, these boundaries are very important because when you're accused or even when you're found guilty of manslaughter, but not murder, you're under house arrest. You couldn't leave the boundaries of the city without severe consequences. So keep that in mind when we go to Geezer here. Because Geezer, as a city just continue to be built upon. By the time of Solomon, around 100 B.C., this was a major metropolis. I got a chance to hike through some of the ruins here. Just amazing that this was one of Solomon's cities, built here as a city of refuge. But as you wander off into the uh, away from the city, you're going to see these standing stones. Stones they would stand up as a reminder of God's promise. This is a place God promised you could find refuge, a place you could promise to find justice, a place you could get a fair hearing. So these gigantic standing stones were representative of God's promises he has made to them. If you wander a little bit farther into the woods, you're going to find in the middle of the woods will be these giant rocks with Hebrew written on it. These are the boundary markers. Your cattle can go here but not much farther if you're found guilty of manslaughter you're under house arrest you got to stay within the city you step outside the boundary marker and it's fair game for the avenger to avenge you for what you've done here's another one of those boundary markers you can see here in geezer so all the different things talked about in the bible are still there today and we can see it now this is god setting up a jewish city with jewish access to justice But the same thing is affirmed later in the Bible, in the book of Romans. That there's a distinction between you and I should not ever take personal revenge and yet we can also pursue justice by the government to hold people accountable for what they've done wrong. These two things were true in the Jewish time, it's also true in the Roman time, even with the Roman government with all of its cruelty and oppression. Here's what Paul writes in Romans. Beloved, do not avenge yourself. Don't take revenge in your own hands. Rather, give place for wrath. Let God be the one who brings the wrath or the judgment against them. Remember, God says, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. To which you'd say, well, I guess Christians should never take anyone to court. I guess it's never okay to, to, to prosecute somebody. No, because then he goes on the next chapter and says, let every soul be subject to the governing authorities. There is no authority except God, and God sets up authorities, kingdoms, and rulers, and nations, and they're not a terror to good works, but God wants nations to be set up to be a terror to evil, to punish evil. For he is God's minister for you for good. I'm talking about governments. If you do evil, you should be afraid you're going to be punished. For he does not bear the sword in vain. I'm talking about the government. For he, the government, is God's minister An avenger, same word we're going to see in Numbers, to execute wrath on him who practices evil. So it is okay to pursue justice and to want justice and to use the government to enact justice. But there's sometimes governments are corrupt in time. You know, try and get, if you're an Israelite, try and get justice from the Pharaoh. So sometimes you're going to have to trust we're not getting ultimate justice until the end of time. But more often than not, You should appeal to the system you have to get justice from the government God has set up. I think it's helpful. I was talking to a friend recently who uh, just had been betrayed by coworkers. Just didn't see it coming. Stabbed in the back. Destroyed their reputation. Friendships misaligned. Gossip spread about them. And they were just angry. And rightfully so. As they shared the anger they had, they they could feel the bitterness growing within them. And they're like, how do I let go of this? I, I know I'm supposed to forgive my enemies, but that sense of justice is still in me. And As we were dialoguing on this and they were talking about that, I said, sometimes it's helpful to make distinctions about forgiveness. There's different aspects of forgiveness. You can forgive somebody even if they don't even apologize just because you want to be free. So do you want to be free? Yes. Forgiveness takes one. And you say, God, I am not qualified to be the judge. I'm going to hand this situation. I'm telling my story over and over and over again. I'm going to hand this to you. You're in charge. I'm going to give place for wrath so that you can be free. It won't happen one time. So you keep handing it over to God and handing it over to God. And that's what I'm doing. I'm handing it over to God. I did it again. I'm only handed it over to God twice this week. <laughs> I only hand it over to God once today. Progress. There's a difference between that and reconciliation. That takes two. You might want to reconcile with a son or daughter. They don't want to reconcile with you. Or you might say, I want to forgive somebody, but I don't want to reconcile. I don't want them in my life anymore. They're destructive. They're unhealthy. It's okay to forgive and not reconcile. Another stage is restoration. You may not trust them again. It's going to take time to establish trust. And sometimes if you say, I don't have to restore trust to forgive. I can forgive. Then I'll think about whether or not I want to reconcile And then it's going to take time before I restore. But all of that can sit in the same vein as, and I can pursue justice from a court of law. So you can simultaneously forgive a murderer and want them incarcerated. Because the loving thing to do is to punish somebody for unjust killing, a murder, and to hold them accountable to what they did. And often when you hear Christians talk, it's like one or the other. But these are all distinct things that can be weighed in balance. So I was chatting with this friend, and... They were pursuing the justice side of it and it's like you know i found out i don't have any real recourse legally on what happened in the situation so i guess i'm just gonna have to deal with the personal aspect of letting go and forgiving and giving god that place for wrath and 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 we're i'm seeing more and more freedom in her life through that so i know where you are in pursuing vengeance versus justice which of those stages are you wrestling with We're all tempted to pick up the revenge and say, God, you're giving too much patience. I don't want to give that much patience. So that's the first way, a city that balances innocence, forgiveness, and justice. What's the second way we balance the scales? Well, it's interesting. He says that justice in God's city is balanced for anyone and everyone. Now, keep in mind, this is shocking. This is not true of the Roman system. Uh, there was the rich justice and the poor justice. There was the powerful justice versus the un- un- unpowerful justice. There was the, you're, 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 you're from our tribe, you're from our nation justice, and the, you're from out of town justice. Not in God's cities. So it's just amazing. God says, guilty or accused people have access to justice regardless of their background or their race. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the children of Israel Say to them, when you cross the Jordan of the land of Canaan, you shall appoint cities to be cities of refuge for you, that the manslayer, accidental murder, who kills somebody accidentally can flee there to hide. They shall be cities of refuge for you from the avenger. That's the person who's going to bring about justice. You can hide there until the trial. The person may not die until he stands before the congregation in judgment. He gets a jury of his peers. So... No avenging, no justice, until there's a trial. And he's going to set out rules of evidence, rules of eyewitness testimony, to make sure it's fair. But he goes on to say, this is for everyone. These six cities of refuge aren't just for Israelites. Appoint three cities on this side of the Jordan, three cities on that side of the Jordan, so we can get to it easily. There'll be cities of refuge. And the six cities will be for refuge for what? For children of Israel, the Jewish people. And for the stranger the Gentile, the Egyptian, and for the sojourner, somebody who's just passing through. Everyone has access to God's justice in these cities. This was unheard of. A common standard for all people at all times. Anyone, it's for anyone, who kills a person accidentally can flee here to have access to justice. He goes on. Now, guilty people cannot be punished until after you weigh the evidence. that's why if we're going to be followers of Jesus, we can be angry at something that happens on the news. We can be angry because it looks bad or it looks evil or it looks like they're guilty. But we've got to weigh that intention with presumed innocence. We don't have all the facts. And we want somebody impartial to weigh the evidence. And God gets into that. He says, if he struck somebody with a weapon, an iron element, like a implement, like a sword or spear, so that he dies, then he's probably a murderer. If the murderer shall surely be put to death. If he strikes him with a stone in his hand, by which one could die, a stone weapon, then he's a murderer, and the murderer will be put to death. If he strikes him with a wooden hand weapon, so again these are weapons, by which he could die, and he does, he's a murderer, the murderer shall be put to death. So he's saying, let's weigh the circumstances. Was this accidental, somebody accidentally threw something, or was it a weapon they are going after it? We're weighing criminal intent. We're weighing the weapons that were used. Now the phrase then comes up, the murderer shall be put to death, which brings up capital punishment. So let me give you kind of the philosophical evidence for capital punishment, how Christians think about this, and you can wrestle with it yourself. So back to the scales. Here's how philosophically capital punishment works. On this side of the scale, somebody innocent of eternal value has died. In order for this to be just punishment, what are you going to put on the other side to balance the scales of something eternal and innocent that was extinguished? God could have said, well, every time somebody dies, you have to pay a $100 fine. And what happens? Human life is now worth a hundred bucks. Okay, it's a thousand bucks. All right, human life is worth a thousand bucks. A million dollars. Human life is worth a million bucks? Okay, it's worth 10 years in prison. Killing of innocent life is only worth 10 years of your life? You see the problem? So philosophically, capital punishment is saying the only way to ethically balance the scale is if somebody innocent was killed unjustly, then somebody guilty who did it must give their life to forfeit their life to balance the scales because now something eternal was lost that was innocent and something eternal that was guilty was punished, that's why it balances the scales. So that's the philosophical case for capital punishment that's that's alluded to here in this passage. Now, many Christians don't support capital punishment, and here's some reasons why. There are many people who've been in prison for 10, 20, 30 years, and we found DNA evidence. It turns out that they were innocent. What would be more tragic than having an innocent person killed is to have another innocent person killed who didn't do it. So some people are against capital punishment because of that, the rules of evidence. There's just It's just not worth the chance of two innocent people being killed. Other folks have pushed back on capital punishment because the rich have access to better lawyers or better justice than maybe the poor or the powerless. And that's why they may not support capital punishment. But God is advocating for capital punishment here, and I want you to understand the philosophy behind it, which is someone innocent, eternal has died, and something needs to balance the scales. And there's a Hebrew word related to that. And as you think about it, just think about all those different Christian principles, and you can kind of come to your own conclusion, but that's how Christians have thought about this historically. All right, back to the evidence. We need to find out, if they are going to be murdered by the Avenger, was there really criminal intent so the avenger of the blood, and the word avenger is somebody who redeems, reclaims, or restores. We need to restore the land, restore the justice of what happened by this innocent person being killed. Something wrong occurred here, and it must be balanced out is the idea of the avenger. This was not the person's family, typically, who got killed, but a spokesman from the family who brought about the avenging or the restoring. So it was kind of like, you know, who's in charge of pushing the button or, uh, or pulling the switch kind of idea. So, the avenger of the blood shall put the murderer to death. When he meets him, he shall put him to death. Now, again, he goes over the qualifications. That's only if he had criminal intent, meaning he pushed him out of hatred. We established this was hatred that drove this. He intended to kill him. He was lying in wait. It was an ambush. The evidence shows it was ambush. He tried to kill him. Or he hurled something at him purposely, trying to kill him. Or in enmity, he strikes him with his hand so that he dies. You could just see. He was trying to take him out. Then the one who struck him shall surely be put to death because he's a murderer. So he's saying, until you establish the weapon and the criminal intent, they cannot be held or punished. That's kind of the idea here. However, if it was accidental, he pushed him suddenly, but it, wasn't with, it was without enmity. He threw something at him, but he wasn't lying in wait. In fact, he kind of stepped into his line of fire. He was just throwing it you know, somewhere else. Or he used a stone, but it wasn't the kind of stone by which somebody would die. It was just kind of a stone he was throwing, having fun, and all of a sudden he was throwing it at him without seeing him, so that he dies. If any of those things happen, it's still tragic. But it wasn't criminal intent. So they're still going to have to balance the scales because it was manslaughter, not murder. So here's what happens. If you establish it's accidental, the congregation will judge between the manslayer and the avenger of blood according to these judgments. The evidence, the witnesses, all these different pieces. Now, if you remember from Genesis, the first murder, when Cain kills his brother Abel, God says, the blood of the ground, the voice of your brother's blood is crying out to me for justice. One of the reasons why God has eliminated and killed off all of the Canaanites is because they shed innocent blood for 900 years. And the blood of the innocents has been calling out for God to bring justice to the other side of the scale. That's the idea here. All right. So, three parts to this. Balancing innocence and justice over here, balancing criminal intent versus manslaughter and distinguishing that from murder. And then the third part here is really interesting because it deals with witnesses. Justice is to be balanced by protecting accidental lawbreakers. There's a difference between an accident and something that was done on purpose. So number one, the congregation shall deliver the manslayer from the hand of the avenger of blood, and the congregation shall return him to the city of refuge where he fled. So what's he saying here? He's saying in this passage that if he's declared not guilty of manslaughter, sorry, of murder, but he did kill somebody accidentally, he has certain consequences. He needs to return back to the city he fled, and he's going to have to stay there in the boundary markers until the time that the priest who was anointed with the holy oil dies. So he's under house arrest for the next 10, 20, 70 years, depending on how long the high priest lives. And if he steps outside of those boundary markers... The avenger of blood can kill him. He is not facing the consequences of his manslaughter. We are trying to balance the scales, and they do come with consequences. If the manslayer at any time goes outside the limits of the city of refuge where he fled, then the avenger of blood finds him outside the city. The avenger of blood can kill him for, mans- even for manslaughter because he didn't serve his time in house arrest. Because he should have remained in the city of refuge until the death of the high priest. But after the death of the high priest, he served his time, he's innocent, he can return to any of the land, he can enjoy the possession of the land, and you're to declare him have served his sentence. Now, he then goes into rules of evidence. Now, these things shall be a statute of judgment to you for all your generations. These are principles apply to everybody of all time. Whoever kills a person, the murderer shall be put to death on the testimony of witnesses, not one witness who might have an agenda, who might be malice, who might be lying. You need multiple witnesses to affirm the facts of what happened. One witness is not sufficient testimony against a person for the death penalty. Moreover, you shall take no ransom for the life of murder. Somebody can't say, well, I killed somebody, but how about I make a donation to the city? None of that is going to balance the scales. Do not take bribes, but he shall surely be put to death. And you shall take no ransom for him who has fled to the city of refuge. You can't say, well, how about I buy my way out of? Let's not wait for the high priest to die. How about I buy my way out? Of? No, that's not going to work. So, you shall not pollute the land. And this is so key. The Canaanites polluted the land by not having justice. Blood defiles the land, and no atonement can be made for it when blood is shed upon it except the blood of him who shed it. So, let me give you an example. If you went to history class, you probably heard that Christians are backward, superstitious idiots. Because we believe in uh, or were cause of the Salem Witch Trials. You have kind of heard some version of that. So let's talk about the Salem Witch Trials for a second. Do you know how many people died in America in the Salem Witch Trials? I guess in your head what it might be. 27. Tragic, superstitious, wrong deaths. But 27 people died in America at the Salem Witch Trials. Why did it stop? We'll come back to that. Do you know at the same time how many people died in Europe under the witch trials? Did you know the witch trials were much bigger in Europe? 50,000 people were killed in Europe at the witch trials. Why did the witch trials stop in Salem? Because three pastors, one named John Wise and two other ones, approached the governor, pulled out the book of Numbers and said, these are unjust trials. They're not following the rules of evidence. They're not following the witnesses and what God has laid out. We need to repent of the injustice to what we have done. Governor Phipps came to the judge who had executed these uh, women and they publicly repented. The governor and the judge with three pastors guiding, they repented of the Salem witch trials because they had violated God's principles for justice. Probably left that out of your history book. These are principles that serve all people at all time. And they speak to a new type of culture that is attractive. The Romans didn't have access to that. The Greeks didn't have access. This was a brand new type of law transcending the the Mesopotamians and the Canaanites and, and everyone in between. And that's why God ends with this application. He says, when you practice this, you're living out the presence of God in your community. By committing to justice being served with a blindfold. When people have strong political opinions about something that was shown on the news. And you're going to say, listen, let's delay judgment. Let's presume innocence. It sounds horrible what's happened. If that is what happened, we're going to pursue justice to the fullest extent of the law. But we're going to balance all of these principles and make sure somebody objective, weighs the evidence. When you do that, as he said in the last verse, you're no longer defiling the land with revenge or injustice. But instead, people are going to recognize there's something different here. This is a place a different type of God, a different type of idea dwells. And God simultaneously brings us all, humbles us all and says, you think murders are bad? If you've hated someone in your heart, you're a murderer. And we're all humbled equally in need of the city of refuge. And Jesus says, I am the city of refuge you can run to because you're guilty. You've murdered people in your heart. You've committed adultery in your heart. Come and find refuge at the city. Who is me? And upon the cross, you see that Jesus balanced the scales because we imperfectly defiled the land, defiled our heart, defiled our tongue, defiled our life. And Jesus dies and eternally experiences hell for all of us to balance the scales so you and I can be forgiven. Because He is our tower and He is our refuge, He is our city of refuge. read this story years ago. It's called The Long Silence. At the end of time, billions of people were seated on a great plain before God's throne. Most shrank back from the brilliant light before them. Some groups, though, near the front talked heatedly, not cringing with cringeworthy shame, but with belligerence. Can God judge us? How can he know about suffering? Snapped a young brunette. She ripped open a sleeve to reveal a tattooed number from a Nazi concentration camp. We endure terror, beatings, torture, and death. And another group of black men lowered his collar. What about this? He demanded, showing an ugly rope burn, lynched for no crime but being black. In another crowd, there was a pregnant teen with sullen eyes. They kicked me out of church, always whispering behind my back like they were better than me, she murmured. Far across the plain were hundreds of such groups. Each had a complaint against God for the evil and suffering he had permitted. How lucky God was to live in heaven, where all the sweetness and light occurs, where there's no weeping or fear, no hunger or hatred. What did God know of what man had been forced to endure in this world? For God leads a pretty sheltered life, they said. So each of these groups sent forth a leader, chosen because they had suffered the most. A Jew, a black victim of injustice, A person from Hiroshima, a horribly deformed arthritic, a diseased child. In the center of the vast plain, they consulted with each other. And at last, they were ready to present their case. It was rather clever. Before God could be qualified to be our judge, he must endure what we have endured. Their decision was that God should be sentenced to live on earth like a man. Let him be born a Jew. Let the legitimacy of his birth be questioned. Give him a work so difficult that even his family would think he's out of his mind. Let him be betrayed by his closest friends. Let him face false charges, be tried by a prejudiced jury, and convicted by a cowardly judge. Let him be tortured. Then at last, let him see what it means to be terribly alone. Then let him die, so there could be no doubt he died. Let there be a great host of witnesses to verify it. As each leader announced his portion of the sentence, loud murmurs of approval went out from the throng of the people assembled. When the last had finished pronouncing sentence, there was a long silence. No one uttered a word. No one moved. For suddenly, all knew that God had already served. Sins. Jesus came into a broken, unjust world and faced everything we've done to others and what others have done to us. And he gives us the source of justice, the source of our own forgiveness, the source of being able to forgive our enemies. But we only find it when we fall upon Him as our city of refuge. We invite the band to come out. This next song is going to be about that, but let me pray for us and pray for you as you wrestle with this in your own head. Maybe you want to say, Father, I'm holding on to revenge and I want to let go. God, remind me what you've forgiven me for. Father, I throw myself upon your mercy knowing I don't measure up. Fill me with your patience. Fill me with your forgiveness. Teach me to let you be judge. And remind me of the comfort of finding you as my refuge. In Jesus' name.